Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends to hear about their career journeys, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Northwest Internship Coordinator Travis Klein. And I'm Hannah Christian, the Assistant Director of Career Services here at Northwest. And on today's podcast, we have Monica Oh, shoot. I forgot how to ask how to... Ziegel? You're right. <laughs> Woo! She is a former... I say former again. She's a current Bearcat. She was a history major when she graduated from Northwest. And now she's returned to us as the Hope for All coordinator. She's been here for about a year and a half in that role. So welcome, Monica. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. So uh, we kind of had asked you before, but what exactly is the Hope for All coordinator? A lot of people might not be familiar with that. Okay. Well, my basic job is to prevent suicide. I'm funded by a suicide prevention grant. But what I'd like to say is that I'm a happiness facilitator. I, with the groups that I talk to and the workshops that I teach and stuff like that, I I would teach people how to be happy. All right. That's awesome. <laughs> so this is a grant funded program. So is it on a particular like cycle? I know some of the grant programs are on, on different um, types of things. It's a three year grant. However, with the passage of the fee increase for wellness last, it, well, it was this year, actually just pre COVID. Um, so five years ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, they passed a funding a um, funding increase for the wellness services, so my my job should be safe after the grant's over. Oh, great! Go what ahead, kind Travis. of programming do you do with Hope for All? Like, you know, as you say suicide prevention, I imagine that's that's a lot of different things, kind of cumulatively adding up. So, what kind of stuff does Hope for All do? I help with um, teaching our wellness workshops, which is you know how to manage stress, relationships. Um, anxiety, depression, all that fun stuff. Um, I also partner with campus entities and we do things like last fall we did um, women and weightlifting because exercise is one of the best things to help your um, mind get better, releases those happy endorphins and all that. I do some surveys to um, see what our level of mental health is here on campus. Started the Active Minds chapter here on campus. That's probably one of my favorite things that I've done. And um, basically we just, we talk to people about how they can control their emotions instead of letting their emotions control them. So one of the things that we really love hearing about on the podcast is everyone's career journeys. So (laughs) it sounds like you've had quite a career journey. So what was your first job, Monica? Very first job ever. My first job ever was working at the cafe in Barnard, Missouri, which is a (laughs) town of about 300 people just south of Maryville. And did you, were you a waitress, hostess? I was a a waitress. Burger flipper? Waitress. So how did you get that job? They needed somebody and I was available. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't too hard. So how long did you work as a waitress there? Oh, I just did it over one summer and then school started and I was involved in sports and all that. So I didn't have time to work. So was that high school? 
Yeah, that was in, I think it was 15, actually. So my dad actually drove me to work at every day and picked me up. Did you, did you work at all, like, during the other summers in high school? What did you do after that? Um, I did some babysitting, and I worked for my dad in his shop. What does your dad do? My dad was a machinist. So I would go in the shop, and I would do a lot of sweeping up of metal shavings, and I could run the drill press and stuff like that. That's cool. Actually, you're the first person who's had that type of experience uh, (laughs) at a young age that we've had on. Um, So what brought you to Northwest as a student? Well, honestly, I, you know, I grew up around here, so I already had that Bearcat pride. And then on top of that, my parents said they wouldn't pay for school unless I went to Northwest. (laughs) That's a good incentive. (laughs) Yeah. So, but I wanted to go here anyway, so that was fine. And so you, you were a history major. What was your minor? Criminal justice. And so what was your, um, what was your motivation for being a history major? And, and what did you gain out of that? Um, my motivation was that I had planned on going to law school. And I, I'm kind of a history nerd. And so that kind of went together. But um, looking into law schools, history was one of the um, majors that they look for because we know how to research things very well. And then criminal justice, again, because I wanted to be a lawyer. Well, that plane got derailed by a boy. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. The plot thickens. So um, anyway, I still love history and learning about it, but it's, um, I think it's important for, so that, um, you know, that old saying, you know, if you don't learn about history or, doomed to repeat it. Yeah, it's, it's true. You say you got derailed by a boy, but what did you do upon, so you decided not to go to law school. Right. So what, it, what was your plan then after that? What was your plan B after, you, after law school was sort of? I was in the criminal justice club and somebody from probation and parole had come and spoken. And I thought that sounds pretty interesting. That sounds kind of fun. And so my senior year, I did an internship with probation and parole. And then they kept me on as a volunteer after that. And it was about four months or so after I graduated that they had an opening and hired me. So you started out as a probation? Probation and parole officer for the state of Missouri. And my specialty was um, sex offenders and dangerous felons. Wow, (laughs) impressive. So how long did you work at that position? I worked there about four years. And what is your biggest takeaway? What is, cause that seems like a very insightful position. Like you, you must have learned a lot working with those types of um, people. So what, what types of, in your first like professional position, I feel like you learn a lot, not just about working, but about kind of the difference between like a working life versus like school, right? So right. W- tell us about what you learned in that first position. I learned that I don't always need to say the first thing that comes into my head. (laughs) I told a judge once in open court that he was stupid because he said that women can't be sex offenders. So while that's true and he was stupid for saying that, yeah, I learned that 
there's a time and a place for that, and I don't always need to just blurt it out. So I guess that's I a value, that's a valuable lesson. So yes. if you don't always learn that in school. So <laughs> you have some real. Well, world thankfully, that judge retired like not much longer after that. So <laughs> I didn't I didn't have to deal with having a bad relationship with the judge for very long. So what did you do as a probation and parole officer? Like what what were some of the things that you would do on kind of an average day there? Okay, so as a parole officer, I, I get reports from prisons for, from guys and girls who were getting ready to be released. And then I would go investigate where their home plan is going to be. For sex offenders, that was really important because, you know, they couldn't be within so many feet of a school. They couldn't be with people they may have offended with before. They can't live with minors, that sort of thing. And then I would either approve or deny that home plan. They'd come out, we'd talk, I'd direct, and this is the same for probationers too. They have to have a job. Um, they have to report to me at the minimum of like once, once a month. Sex offenders was usually more than that. And then I would do home visits where I would go out to their listed home just unannounced show up and they're required to let me in and go look around the house, make sure they're not hiding things. And one guy was really excited to show me, you know, open his fridge for me in the kitchen to show me that he didn't have any beer because he was a big beer drinker. And that was one of his conditions was that he um, not consume alcohol. And I could see that he had like a back porch with another fridge in it. And I'm like, oh, great. What's in that fridge? (laughs) That was his beer fridge. It was completely full. So this is a little bit of an interesting side note. But if you are convicted of something like that, how do you go about then finding another job? Because like I said, we're, we're kind of an office that's very interested in how people find employment. How did they typically find jobs once they were getting out of prison or, or, you know, what was the process for that? A lot of them really did some work on that before they left prison. So they, I would have them, if they didn't have a job, I'd have them go to the unemployment office. I don't know what it's called now. Is it still called the unemployment office? I don't know. But <laughs> sure either. <laughs> but they would go there and they would get some direction on job searching and, and they would have to, I'd direct them to turn in so many applications each week and until they found a job. That's a lot of what we do with college students as well. So yeah. very similar process. Only we are the unemployment office here. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So after you decided, uh, or Travis, did you have a question? I was just going to say that I know a couple of people who work in jobs like that, or they work, you know, they're social workers. And the thing that seems to be the common thread with all of them is that that's a really high stress job. And it's really, you take your work home with you. It's, it's sometimes difficult to do that. So was, was that something, you know, as a, as a probation and parole officer, was it hard to, you know, have that work-life balance? Was it something you, you kind of had that stress with? Or? Yeah, I really enjoyed the job. Um, I thought, it sounds funny, even though I worked with sex offenders, but like, I thought I was good at it and I held mm-hmm. them, I kept them in line. But yeah, I would get phone calls at all hours of the night and on weekends from like sheriff's departments and stuff saying, hey, your guy's doing this and this and this. And so then I would have to either, you know, get a hold of that guy and tell them they got to come in on Monday morning or 
sometimes I would have to issue a warrant and have them arrested. Wow. Yeah, so, <laughs> so heavy it, stuff, it did, yeah. It did cut into home life. So, <laughs> so after about four years, you didn't do probation and parole law anymore. What did you, what did you transition into? What did you do after that? Well, actually, um, throughout my career at probation and parole, um, part of my thoughts was, you know, I'd really like to get a hold of these people before they come out on the streets and get their heads in a good place. So after that, um, I did. Well, actually, I had two kids in the meantime. And then I um, went to work at the prison in St. Joe as a substance abuse counselor. They say substance abuse counselor, but it's really more about life skills. Then I came up here to Maryville, and I ended up becoming the substance abuse unit supervisor. So I, I ran the therapeutic community treatment program out here at Maryville. So what does that involve? Running it or even being, you say, a life skills counselor or even running the program. What, what do both of those involve? When you're in prison, you have to, well, the prisons are run by the, by the inmates. They, you know, they do the cooking, the cleaning, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. So they have to have a job for half of the day and the other half of the day they're in treatment classes. So we had different levels of classes that they moved up to. And so we had to develop curriculum and the scheduling. The scheduling was sometimes the biggest nightmare, scheduling around um, count times and when they ate and that sort of thing. We had support groups for them in the evenings. So then as counselors, we would create um, treatment plans for them. You know, we would interview them, very extensive interview and figure out maybe what some of their underlying issues are because, you know, some of them you, you get rid of the alcohol and their drugs, but they're still jerks. So, <laughs> help them with what their real issues are. And a lot of, a lot of the times it was, um, they use drugs as to self-medicate a lot of, a lot of mental health issues in the prison and they used drugs to self-medicate. So we did a lot. I actually did a lot with them teaching classes on depression and stress and emotions management, that sort of thing. And then moving into like a role where you directed that program, did you, what did you do in that role? Did you hire counselors? Did you yes. supervise yes. their work? So actually I supervised the supervisors <laughs> who supervised the counselors. <laughs> so of course, first of all, I was a supervisor of counselors. So I reviewed all of their work, their reports that they had to write, um, their treatment plans and all that. And then I would go watch them teach classes, you know, and help them become more comfortable in their role. And then when I became the unit supervisor and supervised the supervisors, you know, I, I would just have to make sure that they were properly supervising their counselors. And then I had to deal with a lot more administrative stuff in that role. So what, so if, if I'm a human services student and I'm listening to this podcast and I think this might be something I want to do, what makes a good counselor? What are some of the traits of a good counselor? Listening, definitely listening. And um, people know themselves better than we're ever going to know them, but, you know, maybe providing some insights and letting counseling be 
like self-driven because you know I can I can tell a guy hey this is your problem and it's what you need to work on but if he has no interest in working on that then he's really not going to get anything out of it so it needs to be you know cooperate with them and especially in prison one number one in prison no touching (laughs) I don't know why that but yes there's no touching in prison and if you say you're going to do something do it If you don't know the answer, say you don't know the answer, but you'll get back to them and then actually get back to them, follow through. So that's how you build rapport and trust with with them. I'd say those are good skills for all job searchers. (laughs) I was going to say, that sounds like my job, right? I could just say the same. (laughs) Yeah, those sound like evergreen skills that really everybody should learn. Yeah. So what was that transition like? So working in a prison, you know, doing substance abuse is a whole lot different than being on a college campus working suicide prevention. So what was the switch like? You know, hopefully it's not prison-like here for the students. Well, you know, it's so nice. I get to leave whenever I want. I'm not surrounded by fence. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I get to have scissors in my office. You know, it's crazy. And my cell phone. Yeah, that, those are nice big differences. I love working with the students. I just, I love it. And, and, you know, I said the number one rule in prison is no touching. I am the world's biggest hugger. And so that was, you know, I, I did hug my coworkers, of course. But, um, you know, I get to hug students and, you know, just sit and talk with them, which I, I, I love that. And I love teaching about mental health and, Mental health is pretty universal in, you know, in the prison and on campus, you know, these kids just haven't chosen to, um, you know, break the law to take care of their mental health yet. What are some of the biggest tips and tricks that you, you said exercise, for example, helps you manage your mental health. What else do you teach? Um, Looking for the good things, like hunt the good stuff. So I actually did this with my kids at home is that we'd sit at the dinner table every day and I'd tell that we would share three good things that happened to us that day or that we saw or that, you know, made us smile, whatever. And it couldn't be stuff like, you know, Hey, I didn't, you know, punch somebody in the face. (laughs) It had to be something like, you know, something they actually earned or did or saw. And after we started doing that, they, started looking for the good things all, you know, just automatically. And I noticed I did too, you know, I, I'm not a morning person, but I'd be driving to work in the morning and I'd be like, wow, that sunrise is really pretty. It bef- and it really changed my attitude and demeanor, I guess. And then another thing is to, um, you know, not take other people's actions personally what they do is about them. It's not about you. And that really helped with, and I use this example a lot, driving in Maryville, which can sometimes make us all a little ragey. So instead of, you know, cussing people out in my head, I started saying, maybe they didn't see me. Maybe they've got an emergency at home. You know, I don't know what's going on in their lives, but it certainly wasn't because they saw me and wanted to make me angry. And that has, um, that has made my drive through Maryville much more peaceful. I can imagine that was probably, that's probably a really 
good insight as a college student, just trying to think back to my days as a student, just realizing that other people are not trying to, I don't know, they're not trying to make your life bad. You know, everybody's kind of in their own head doing their own thing. That realization is really a big part of life, I think. Absolutely. Well, I think that positive outlook too, you know, with depression and stuff like that, you know, once you fall down that well of everything's negative, then it all just snowballs and it gets bigger and bigger and then everything, everybody's against you. So I would imagine that having that positive frame of mind can make a huge difference in, you know, someone's outlook and their, their overall mental health. We can change the pathways in our brain to be happier. You know, we have to choose to do it. Um, Sometimes when people get mired down in depression, they don't even want to change. They don't, Mm want to think about good stuff but you know if you you know point them in the right direction you can't really force them to do anything but definitely point them in the right direction of you know find one good thing what's one good thing that's going on in your life and start start focusing on finding those good things how did covid change how you work with students because i you know that when you're in quarantine, you're with your family or, you know, away from family in some cases, you know, I would imagine that students who already kind of struggled with mental health, probably it was heightened during that time, you know, in the five years, it seemed like that we were yes, locked down in the spring. Seems like it's so, been yeah. So how did that change? You know, how, how you work with students, you obviously can't do an in-person workshop when everybody's at home. So, yeah, of course we had to um, change up our programming to go online our counselors at the at wellness services started doing like telehealth. We tried to do fun interactive things online. So we did like jack jackbox party pack things. Um, we did some we did some online like training or um, workshops. We did a podcast too. It was called Alive and Wellness. We we might we might release some more. I don't know, but. Um, yeah, it was really, it was difficult. And it was difficult for me because I need people and, and also connections, making connections are essential for good mental health. And it's, it's hard to do that over the computer. You really need to be more in person, but we, we did our best with, you know, Zoom meetings and, and just keeping in contact with some of our students that we knew were struggling and, just trying to help them out, still be there for them in a virtual way. All right. I'm going to flip the script here a little bit, and we're going to kind of go back to the fact that you're a bear cat. And I ask everyone always, what does it mean to you to be a bear cat? It means, you know, just having pride in this institution. I think I received an excellent education here. I feel like I will always be Bearcat family and, and it really does feel like a family out here. You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter who I meet. We all love being Bearcats. It's, it's almost contagious. Um, yeah, even, you know, it's so cool. Even people in the community who didn't actually go to school here or whatever, they, they still love it. You know, I think we just have a great atmosphere out here and, you know, we care about our students and we want to see them succeed. And, and of course, (laughs) the football team, my freshman year, I think we were 0 and 11. And then my senior year was when we won our first national championship. 
And that was just, that was awesome to see and be a part of. And of course, you know, our football team has continued to do really well and in our basketball teams now. And um, yeah, I worry about my student athletes right now that they're not, you know, having those connections because of the fall sports getting canceled. But I did see when I was out running on the track the other day, the football team's practicing and I guess we're going to have a scrimmage. So that's awesome. But yep. I just, it's, you know, being a Bearcat means that you always have a place to call home and you always have family. If someone has concerns, you know, maybe they have, you know, they're concerned about their mental health. How do they reach out? How do they get a hold of Hope for All? Okay. So I am in the union and my office is kind of back in the corner of student affairs office. Anyone can come to me anytime for anything. And I do have people who just come and talk to me and but I get emails from groups who want me to come talk at their events stuff like that so email is great stopping by is great do can you tell us what your email address is do you have a hope for all email address or do we just email you it's just me so it's mzegel at nwm at at, you know northwestmissouri.edu all right, so what, one of the things that we've done on season two here is we've given everybody a sort of last platform to give tips, tricks, wisdom. Uh, if you have something you want to say that's just bursting out of you, like we want to give you an opportunity to say that. So this is your time. Well, I, my thing is get involved. Get involved, find something that you're interested in and get involved because Northwest has so much to offer students. I was a commuter student, so I didn't get involved as much. And now that I work here and I see all of the stuff I could have done, I kind of kick myself in the butt for not getting more involved in things because it's so much fun. And I mean, it's fun for me just watching. So I know it's gotta be fun for the students to be involved in it. So get involved, be a part of something bigger than yourself, be a part of something that is you know, cultivating happiness. I love that. Excellent. Cultivate yep. happiness. Cultivate yep. happiness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Monica. We yes, have really you. enjoyed having you on the podcast. Well, thank you. And we're going to take the cultivate happiness. And we're still going to run with that. So. Okay. All right. <laughs> Just, you know, if there's any royalties or anything, I want that. <laughs> Absolutely. We will attribute the source. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll do it for another episode of Behind the Bearcat. We'll talk to you next time.